from deep inside your audio device of choice. And from so long ago, this program was recorded way back last Wednesday, the Wednesday before you're hearing it. So it's sort of catch-up day and then major information day on the program. Yeah, now I'm naming the days, like you do. And first off, the Apologies of the Week. Well, given the fact that um, this is only midweek as this program is being recorded, I'm going to feature two apologies. You'll hear them. You'll hear the tone of them both, both on the subject of um, sexual misbehavior by powerful men. First, from Charlie Rose. In my 45 years in journalism, I have prided myself on being an advocate for the careers of the women with whom I've worked. Nevertheless, in the past few days, claims have been made about my behavior towards some former female colleagues. It is essential that these women know I hear them and that I deeply apologize for my inappropriate behavior. I'm greatly embarrassed. I've behaved insensitively at times, and I accept responsibility for that, although I do not believe that all of these allegations are accurate. I always felt that I was pursuing shared feelings, even though I now realize I was mistaken." The incidents involved, among other, thing, among other things, having female employees at his house when he uh, would walk in from the shower naked or with an open bathrobe, as you please. This from John Lasseter, head of Pixar. I've always wanted our animation studios to be places where creators can explore their vision with the support and collaboration of other gifted animators and storytellers. As a leader, it's my responsibility to be sure that no members of the team fail to feel valued. And I now believe I've been falling short, short in this regard. I've recently had a number of difficult conversations that have been very painful for me. It's never easy to face your missteps, but it's the only way to learn from them. As a result, I've been giving a lot of thought to the leader I am today, compared to the mentor, advocate, and champion I want to be. It's been brought to my attention that I've made some of you feel disrespected or uncomfortable. That was never my intent. Collectively, Collectively, you mean the world to me, and I deeply apologize if I have let you down. I especially want to apologize to anyone who has ever been on the receiving end of an unwanted hug or any other gesture they felt crossed the line in any way, shape, or form. No matter how benign my intent, everyone has the right to set their own boundaries and have them respected. Unquote John Lasseter, taking a six-month leave of absence from Pixar, for what Variety described, among other things, as his tendency to be a, quote, prolific hugger, unquote. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. We are, in case you haven't noticed, ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a society ruled, among other things right now, by algorithms. And uh, we hear that word all the time. Uh, some of us toss it off as if we know what it means. But uh, the rule of algorithms is getting uh, more and more interesting, by which I mean frightening. So I have invited to the program today to talk about her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill. It should be doctor, isn't it? Shouldn't it? Really? Yeah. Is, are yeah. You, you Dr. Are Kathy, doctor? you can call me. Yeah. Okay. It hurts right here. Dr. Kathy O'Neill, uh, who uh, did... Uh, undergraduate work at UC Berkeley, 
where you, I guess, learned to be a troublemaker, <laughs> then did a doc- doctorate in math at Harv- Harvard, and then uh, held positions in the math departments of MIT and Barnard, doing research in arithmetic algebraic geometry. You had me until the geometry part. She worked for four years in the finance industry as a quant and uh, bailed out of that and has now uh, been writing books on the subject of data and data science. Welcome. Thank you, Harry. I'm so happy to be here. So um, let's let's uh, start with that a little bit of that background. Uh, when I was learning not to invest in stocks, I learned that there were like three main ways to analyze stock buying. Uh, one was, um, well, there's also, there's just blind picking, like the racetrack. Um, but there's technical analysis where people look at charts and somehow figure out the chart movements are predictive. Uh, value investing, uh, sort of the Warren Buffett style, where you just, I like this company. I like the, I like their product. I like the way they do business. I'm buying them for the long term, or arbitrage, where you're trying to take advantage of momentary or or very brief price differences and and maximize those to your benefit. Now, when quants came in, quantitative analysts. Are they just did they just burst a huge hole through uh, arbitrage style uh, analysis? Is that the point of the exercise? Hmm, I don't think so. No, I think it'd be closer to okay. charts. I don't think it's perfectly mapping what I did hmm. perfectly maps onto that picture, but I think it'd be closest to charts. What we did was we used historical data going back to like 1980 if we could get it to try to figure out consistent patterns and and you know find statistical patterns that remain consistent and that we could bet on. And we would like try to build models that would have made money in the 80s, would have made money the 90s. And then we would run those models once they were complete um, on the years after 2000 to see if they would still have worked in the years leading up to the present. And if they seemed to be money collectors that entire time, uh, then we would put them into production and try to make money now. Mm-hmm. So they were looking; they were very backwards looking in that in that sense, like as almost all algorithms are. They were saying whatever happened in the past will continue to happen. And the only problem with that is what? Well, sometimes things change. I mean, you know, once the crisis <laughs> happened. <laughs> um, one of the yeah. reasons, by the way, one of the reasons we sort of stopped, uh, we sort of didn't test our data on post two thousand until the very end. Uh, well, because first of all, it's because it's a good, it's sort of a clean statistical methodology that you shouldn't overfit your models, but also because it was a real test because after 2001, I mean, there was a, there was a bubble breaking, you know, in 2001. And the question, the big question was, will this model that you've built adapt to post, um, dot com bubble? Um, environments. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we were completely unaware of the fact that climates change. Um, but having said that, like the ones that were in production at the at the time of the crisis often did not adapt to the financial crisis because things changed in a different way than they had changed at the dot com bubble moment. So yeah, I mean yeah, anything. Things not only change, but they change in different ways. They change in different, in fundamentally different ways. Yeah, that's important. And uh, was that what drove you out of uh, being a well remunerated quant in the financial industry? No, it wasn't a discovery that I wouldn't make money. It was the discovery that I would make money. Yeah. <laughs> that made me leave. It was really a disillusionment. I mean, I am an idealist. I'm actually a hippie, as you would guessed from my from my Berkeley experience. Um, and I wanted to actually like make the world a better place. And I was just incredibly naive when I started fin- working in finance in early 2007 about what that would look like. So 
when the crisis, you know, when the causes of the crisis emerged, I saw mm -hmm. as plain as day that mathematicians had had a large part in them, namely the the AAA ratings on mortgage-backed securities. It wasn't what I was doing exactly, but it was close enough for me to be ashamed. Mm -hmm. And yet the people who ran the uh, ratings agencies weren't ashamed. Well, I think they were, but that doesn't mean they stopped doing it. They weren't ashamed enough. Yeah. So uh, now let's move to the uh, definitional moment. What is an algorithm? An algorithm is something um, that we all do every day in our heads where we use sort of past information and data to predict future success. Um, so we use data that we've collected and models that we've collected over the years to decide, for example, like what to major in in college. If I majored in this, then this is what would happen to in my life. If I majored in that, that's what would happen in my life. So we, we are using information that we've collected, not about ourselves, but about other people. And we're sort of adapting it to our situation saying, will I be successful if I do this? Um, and so just with that very generic definition, I would argue that we do it all, all the time. We don't, we almost never formalize it in computer code. That's what my job was, is to formalize models in computer code. Um, and, you know, we don't necessarily do it in important ways. Most algorithms are completely unimportant, in fact. Um, but there are some algorithms that uh, are very, very important indeed. Um, I think the most important um, thing to know about algorithms is that they're not inherently fair. They're not inherently neutral or objective. That we put in a lot, we, uh, we sort of, project a lot of our agendas onto the algorithms as we build them at the very least because we define success i mean and we, we i would define success in a different way than someone else might define success you define it in the way a hippie defines success right yeah exactly i would define success as like the world is at peace and we know how to share and that's yeah. not that was not the, <laughs> you know a shared definition of success most people if they have the right incentives in place would want to build accurate algorithms but when you have the wrong incentives in place, you actually benefit from wrong, being wrong. So that's exactly what happened with the AAA ratings. Like the people building those risk models had plenty of reasons to not trust them, but they benefited from, from lying. Um, and, you know, so when people talk about algorithms, here's what I want you to keep an eye out for. They're going to they're gonna use examples like chess or go or sports, um, which are all fun things to think about. I love those things, but they have a very clear definition of success that everyone has agreed upon. Um, and that's a big, big difference with the kind of algorithms that I worry about, like things about like who deserves an insurance, who deserves a credit card. Um, is this a good public school teacher? Does this criminal defendant look scary? And should they go to prison for longer than others? Um, those are, those are questions where the definition of success is certainly not well understood and the different stakeholders in the situation all have dis, you know, disagreement on what success looks like. In the book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, you uh, go through several of those uh, kinds of decision matrices that you were just talking about. And um, you compare decisions based on these models, these algorithms, with the old days where, let's say, a banker, is a community banker is sitting there at, behind a desk and uh, a, a member of the community comes in for a loan applying for a loan. And uh, the banker applies uh, certain objective criteria. How much do they make? Uh, can they afford the payments? And then a host of subjective criteria, which we all have. Do I like these kinds of people? How is this person dressed? Do they fill out the form using proper grammar? And is their handwriting sloppy or not? And moving to algorithmically based 
uh, and automated decision making supposedly makes it more objective. That's the theory, right? Well, that's the marketing. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a theory because it's not. <laughs> it doesn't rise to the level yeah. of theory. But it, that's definitely the marketing. The marketing is that if you use you know big data algorithms, you're going to get a lot more information that's relevant, um, and that it's going to be neutral. It's not going to have an agenda. You're not going to have human bias. Human bias will be somehow be um, cleared away. And yet? <laughs> well, there's lots of problems with that. And I think the number one is that there's no such thing as human bias being cleared away um, for two reasons, um, at least. The first one is the, the data that we've collected is a historical artifact of our society. So um, one thing that you know a credit company might do because they need to use data to train their algorithms. It's just use historical data. They just say, okay, historically speaking, who was more likely to pay back their loans in the past? Um, and depending on how far you go back, um, the answer is definitely going to be white men um, because of the way that other people were prevented from getting good employment, for example. Mm -hmm. And so if they just follow the data, as it were, they would say, oh, well, then obviously we should fairly, objectively, and neutrally only give um, credit to white men. Um, and that's just, I mean, it's an extreme example, and it's its comically extreme. It's not that simple. Um, but that's just to say that data itself is not an objective observer. It is collected by humans uh, and it, it is reflection of our society. It's a reflection of the society that it is surveilling. Um, another example I like to give is I use an algorithm inside my head every day to cook dinner for my kids. And the data I use are the ingredients in my kitchen, which I'm, I've already lied because I don't use all the ingredients in my kitchen. My teenagers have talked me into keeping a supply of ramen noodles in those little plastic packages, but I don't really think they're in <laughs> food. So <laughs> I never use them to cook dinner. So I, I am already sort of carving out an exception, like I'm carving up the, the data that I decide is relevant. And that's my bias. That's my subjective choice. And then when I'm done with feeding my family, I decide whether the dinner was a success, which I define because I'm the one in power. And my de de definition of success is if my kids ate vegetables, it was a good meal. And of course, you know, my <laughs> youngest son who loves Nutella he has a different definition of success. And it matters. Over time, I optimize to success. So I, I'm much more likely to make a meal that was what I thought, thought was successful in the past or a meal similar to a meal that was successful in the past. Um, and so the sort of arc of meals in my family, in my family home, is you know very much um, related to my definition of success. So that's the other thing about bias is that we define success. So credit is usually pretty straightforward. Credit is like, do you pay back your loan? But think about something a little bit less straightforward, like, should I hire someone like you? Well, should I hire someone like you? First of all, there's all sorts of historical bias about if so if we only go by who did I hire in the past, that's already a problem. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a very subjective definition of success. Like, how do I know if somebody was successful or will be successful? And again, if I look at historical data, I might I might choose to define success by someone who was who who was promoted a lot and who was given a lot of raises in the past. So people who in the past were given lots of raises, who were promoted a lot, who stayed for a long time. But if you think about it, like it's the culture that decides who deserves a promotion. It's the culture of a company that deserves who gets, you know, uh a raise. Um and it for that matter, the, you know, 
the culture decides who feels comfortable to stay for a long time. So when you, when you optimize to that kind of success, you're blinding yourself to the cultural effects of what, what kind of, uh, what kind of effects there are internal to your company that might make someone look successful or look unsuccessful. That's the kind of thing I really worry about because this is what algorithms are being used for nowadays. All sorts of difficult, messy decisions that people don't really want to think too hard about because it does get complicated. And so they're sort of handing it over to the machine and saying, hey, give us give us a uh, sort of sanitized scoring system that we can point at and call it scientific. It's not at all scientific. It's just, it is sanitized, It's it's but it's embedded all of our historical mistakes as well as successes. Um, and, and we haven't come to terms with that. So previous advantage is is being embedded into the assumptions of the system uh, or it's being blind to the fact of previous advantaging in looking at the historical record. Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes do an extreme thought experiment with uh, Fox News. Fox News is, a, is an extreme thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. So imagine like Fox News decides to build um, a hiring algorithm. And so they have all this data, which is just the 21 years of people trying to apply for jobs at Fox News. Some of them get the offer. So that's a signal. Some of them stay and some of them get promoted or or they get raises. Those, those are all signals. But for the th sake of the thought experiment, we can make the assumption that women, even qualified, hardworking women, were systematically denied uh, success. They were systematically denied promotions and raises. They were made to feel uncomfortable, so they left early. So if we simply define success as someone who you know gets lots of promotions and raises and stays for a long time, and then we ask the and we train our algorithm to find find success, which is what we do. This is how we train algorithms. Then when you apply that algorithm to the current pool of applicants for Fox News, what will happen? Well, what will happen will, will be that the, the women will be filtered out systematically. They will be filtered out because they do not look like the people that were successful in the past. And that's sort of, that's the sort of deep point about machine learning, all these algorithms, is that they do not make things fair. They simply propagate the, the status quo. They automate the status quo. Which is to say, like, if we had a perfect company with a perfect hiring system and perfect ways of, of deciding who deserves a raise and who gives, deserves promotions and a welcoming atmosphere, like, if we had all that, then we would probably want to automate it. Because we'd be like, oh, dude, we did all this work. Let's make this official. Let's formalize this in code. But we don't have that. I mean, Fox News is an extreme example, as I said, but it's not that extreme. Actually, most companies have plenty of implicit bias. So if we wanted to evolve past what we've been doing in the past, like if we want to actually get better, then we, we would do the opposite of, of formalizing it and, and automating it. We would look at ourselves. We would examine our practices and say, how can we do better? And that's the opposite of what we're doing with big data. Let's take something that's not a thought experiment that, that uh, you, you point out in your book, which has uh, gone from being kind of an, a nice marketing uh, exercise for a, a failing weekly news magazine to uh, something that uh, affects the decisions and the fates of hundreds of thousands of young Americans uh, and the people who make decisions at colleges and universities. That's the U.S. News College ratings. Uh, 
Talk a little bit about how this, what we've been speaking about, is uh, embedded in, in that, in that uh, rating system. Right. So, I mean, and, and it's a great example of um, what I call the feedback loop at the society level, that these algorithms don't just, um, they don't just exert power on, the, on their targets. They really, they create all these other sort of feedback loops and um, pressures on society. And I really think the U.S. News and World Report college ranking model is just the perfect example of that. And I should add that it's not big data at all. It's actually small data. But what they did, which was very advanced in the sense of like um, they were early on it, was that they sort of marketed it as objective and fair and neutral. And um, the way they did that was they just kept it secret on the one hand. But on the other hand, they call it they called it quality. And I think the word quality like deserves a medal um, in the sense that like it means nothing, but it, it, it sort of creates trust in the people that hear it. So people are just like, oh, well, what's the highest quality college? And they just loved, loved these lists. People just love lists. But in this case, what happened was uh, a sort of magazine, who was, which was going out of business probably, decided to try this out. And it was a huge success. It wasn't based on particularly good data. A lot of it was self-reported. Um, and yet people just loved it. And so as soon as parents started really loving it, that meant that colleges started paying attention. And then as soon as colleges started really paying attention, they started gaming it, which is to say they tried to up their rank by any means necessary. So they had to kind of backward um, engineer what what was going into the ranking system, um, what were the data ingredients. And actually, since it was self-reported in a large part, like they got to know that pretty well. So, for example, they knew that the average score of their incoming freshman class, or average SAT score was, was something. They knew that um, the number of kids who applied but didn't get in was important. They needed to look exclusive. Um, and they started just doing stuff that would make them look better, make them look more exclusive, make their kids look smarter, um, make their kids happier so they can get fancier kids. Um, and I'll, I'll say one thing that the, the college ranking system didn't care about. And this is just as important as what it does care about is it didn't care about cost. It just simply did not take into account cost, um, which, you know, like going back to the idea of like how much we love lists. I think if we were, if anybody had been asked, if a sort of average parent in, um, in America had been asked, like, what do you care about when it comes to your kid's college? Cost would have been up there uh, with, you know, in the top five, let's mm -hmm. say it that way. But this was blind to cost. And, the result of it being blind to cost would meant that the college administrators who spent a lot of time and effort to um, to game the system could also spend a lot of money to game the system and it would and the tuitions would rise, but the model would not care and for them it just again by any means necessary and sometimes you saw pure gaming sometimes you saw out now cheating you see cheating still um, and the as the college rankings um, generalized to law school rankings, et cetera, you saw cheating in the, by the law schools as well. You just saw bad self-reporting, like just lies. You saw manipulation. It was a, it was a real mess, and it and it continues to be a mess. And the the most, I guess the the saddest thing about it to me is that like it also made the experience of being a high school kid worse, um, because some of the lengths they went to to make themselves look exclusive. Were, were actually sadistic. I mean, you'd have some colleges that would um, get kids to apply even though there was no chance they'd ever get in just because mm -hmm. it would sort of boost 
their exclusivity metric. Um, it also, um, there's reason to think that um, some schools made made it harder to ha- harder for good kids to get in because they didn't like the idea that they they were a safety school because that was another metric that um, the college ranking cared about, like the number of kids who actually come that you admit. Um, so there's all sorts of ways in which kids' experience applying to college has gotten worse in direct uh, reaction to the college ranking. I have to say, I find it hard to believe that anybody could make the experience of being a high school kid worse. But um, I know. <laughs> onward to education uh, as it's practiced in the uh, sub-university level. You go back to a report that uh, made huge waves that was issued during the Reagan administration called A Nation at Risk, which sort of mm-hmm. set the agenda for uh, the debate that is still ongoing about public education in the United States. Uh, talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, Nation at Risk basically panicked people and uh, started the sort of teacher accountability movement. And it was a kind of a sad sort of mathematical mistake, actually. So um, basically it reported that SAT scores were going down um, on average. Um, and so technically they were, but what was actually happening under the covers, and they were looking at like, I think, 40 year span from like 1960 to, you know, maybe, or maybe 20 years, like 1960 to 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was really happening was way more kids, um, poor kids were going to college, way more poor kids were going to college and their scores were lower than rich kids. Um, so if you think about it in 1960, it was a pretty elite thing to go to college by 1980, like it was considered a thing you you strive for as in the middle class. Um, and since the scores for, um, for poorer kids were lower, the average actually went down. But the, but the, the reason it's a mathematical mistake actually has a name called the Simpsons paradox is Thank that you very much. in the same 20, <laughs> in that same 20 year period, if you had only looked at poor kids, their scores went up. If you'd only looked at rich kids, their scores had gone up. So every category of kids actually got better at the test, but the average went down simply because the makeup of who was taking the test had changed in those 20 years. So it looked like bad news, but if you sort of dug down in the data a little bit, it was actually good news in, in lots of ways, like more kids going to college, everyone doing better on the test, et cetera. But yet it was, it was taken the wrong way um, and kind of in a deliberate sense. And it sort of spurred on, as I said, the teacher accountability movement where we had, you know, since then, essentially, and maybe until Trump, we had every every president wanting to be the, the president who fixed education. And usually what that could sort of be translated in two different directions. One could be international competitiveness, which is one thing. Um, and then the other thing, which is usually taken a little more seriously within uh, the states, is this idea that we have to close the achievement gap. So we have to close the difference between average test scores of rich kids and poor kids. And as I said before, there is a gap. Um, and here's another thing. It's actually growing because although, as I said, poor kids are doing better on tests, rich kids are doing better more. They're faster. Um, so the gap is growing. And the idea was, okay, we're going to close this gap. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to get rid of the bad teachers. And the bad teachers must be the problem here. Um, and so there's been just a sort of war on teachers ever since. And how have algorithms or weapons of math destruction in your usage uh, played into that? 
Well, the first thing is, I guess the first and last thing is that you have to find the bad teachers if you're going to get rid of them. And we find the bad teachers with scoring systems, basically. And the, the first generation of scoring systems was really stupid. It was just simply like define a teacher to be bad if a, like a lot of their, their students don't do well in test. Um, and as I just said, you know, poor kids are much less good at tests than rich kids. So when you say that, when you, you're just putting a t sort of target on the back of teachers of poor children. So that was the first generation of sort of teacher accountability. It was obviously unfair to the teachers of poor kids, especially in inner cities. So they came up with a new method called the value-added teacher model, um, which was, to be fair to them, like an effort to make this a fairer system. But the problem was that it was just statistically quite random. So I found um, a teacher who got a six out of 100 one year, and then he, next year he got a 96 out of 100. And he figured out how that had happened. So a little bit about the value-added model. The idea with the value-added model, again, it's based solely on test scores. So if you're looking for some kind of deep understanding of pedagogy, you're, don't look here. Um, it, it was simply like, are these kids doing well on tests? But in this case, it wasn't, are they doing well relative to some abstract benchmark? It, in this case, it was, are they doing well compared to what they were expected to do? So yeah, so that means that each of them has to have an assigned expected score. And that is the algorithm. What is your expected score? And the problem is that it's really hard to guess what a kid's going to get. So these expected scores had lots of uncertainty attached to them. And then the teacher in question would be assessed based on the difference between the, the scores the kids actually got versus the scores they were expected to get. So if like little Johnny was supposed to get a 75, but he only got a 70, the teacher would be sort of dinged for five points. Like teacher did not live up to expectation for Johnny. But if Mary was supposed to get a 75 and she actually got an 80, then the teacher would be sort of given credit. Oh, you did better than expected for Mary. And so does that make sense? So you're mm -hmm. like a bump down for Johnny, a bump up for Mary and, you know, keep going. And if you have 30 kids, then you have 30 bumps. Some of them are up, some of them are down. Um, and the teacher gets sort of the average bump. That's their, that's how they get graded. The problem of course as I already um, suggested, is that there's lots of uncertainty, both for the expected score for Mary and Johnny and all the other kids, as well as the actual score. Because if you think about it, like on a given test day, you might have missed breakfast or you might not have slept well, or, you know, it might be hot that day, but you don't have air conditioning or the test itself might be easier that year because it's the election year. Um, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that those numbers are uncertain. And that difference between actual and expected is called the noise term in the original expected, expected score model. The teacher has 25, 30 kids, so they're being, they're being assessed based on the average of 25, 30 noise terms, which sounded like a very statistically very bad model to me. And I tried to get sort of the formula, but I couldn't get it. And and so it, it, it looked like a lost cause, but then, but then, um, at least for the New York City model, the value-added model for New York City teachers, the New York Post had actually gone to the trouble of getting the names and scores of all the teachers and, and sort of publishing them as a sort of active teacher shaming for the worst scoring teachers. Um, and then this New, York, this New York City high school teacher, Gary Rubenstein at Stuyvesant High School, he got his, his hands on that data and he found more than 600 teachers that actually had two scores for the same subject for the same year. And he plotted them and they looked 
almost completely random. So it was like, I think it's fair to say that this was almost a random number generator. Um, So (laughs) teachers were getting almost random numbers as their overall score. And yet we still had the situation where if you got a bad score for a couple years in a row, you could be denied tenure. And in some places like Washington, D.C. and Houston, you could also be fired for bad scores. And people were fired, um, which is just an outrage. So we have what we have is like an important um, widespread algorithm secret to everyone, including the Department of Education officials who are using it, um, which is nevertheless sort of assigning random numbers to people, and some of them are getting fired for it. And the teacher we mentioned earlier, Mr. Clifford, had figured out why he scored a six one year and a 90-something the, other, the next year, what was, which was what? I believe what happened was when he scored the six, he had kids that were very high-performing, um, and it's really, really hard if your kids are averaging 98, 99 points, you know, percentile to get them higher. Like, how can you get go above expected if they're already in an A plus? Mm. Um, you're just you're just hitting against that limit of 100 um, percent. So he thinks that, you know, just because a couple of them got 95, he looked terrible. And then with the 96, he had another classroom where they had a real potential and they met their potential. But his point is that like, he didn't change the way he taught. He didn't change himself as a teacher. And this is a guy who had 20, I think 26 years experience teaching English. You know, he wasn't going to change and he didn't, he, his tenure wasn't on the line, but his point to me was that we have all these other teachers that were young, they were new and they were incredibly destabilized and demoralized by this arbitrary system of punishment. And it really was arbitrary. I mean, there's reason to think that. Uh, I want to uh, stay in the in the world of education to talk about for-profit colleges, but we have to get to uh, jobs and credit uh, first. Maybe we can circle back to uh, for-profit colleges. But credit scores and e-scores, uh, take us through that a little bit, if you could. Right. So credit scores... People don't like them, and I don't like them either um, because they're used poorly. But I'm going to give some credit to credit scores, <laughs> which is that there are rules for credit scores, and uh, there should be more rules. But one of the great things about credit scores is that um, there's a series of of laws, I think, from the 70s. Um, one of them was called the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and that meant that you couldn't use race or gender to decide people's uh, credit score or their credit worthiness. And the other one is um, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which said that you should have access to the data going into your credit score, and you should be able to complain if the data is wrong. And that's where you get like the free credit reports. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why we can have, we can see our free credit reports. So now like fast forward to, you know, the current internet age, we have pseudo credit scores. I call them e-scores because they're electronic. They're done on the fly by websites um, or by companies. They decide whether we're good or bad um, consumers or, or customers. There's no law. They're, they're not subject to any law that's anti-discriminatory. So they can use whatever information they want about us, including like our race, including who our Facebook friends are, et cetera. Um, and we have no access to that data, nor can we complain if it's wrong. Um, so it's just it's like the Wild West. In some sense, we're going back to that that banker who's dis- who's looking us up and down and deciding based on totally subjective information whether we're worthy. 
And all and this, these- by the way, I should say that the, the, these e-scores are not being used in exactly the same way as the FICO scores. The FICO scores, you know, there's if you're actually being offered credit, like through a credit card, then it, it is subject to those laws I mentioned. But this is the way that the e-scores are being used. If you go to the Capital One website, then an e-score, they will they will perform a sort of they will profile you and decide whether you look like a high value customer or a low value customer. And depending on which kind of customer you look like, they will populate their website with different kinds of ads. So no, it's not a it's not a credit offer, but it is the ad advertising environment that you enter into. Like so, if you um, if you look like a high value customer, you're going to get a an like a credit an advertisement for a fancy credit card with probably better deals than if you look like a low value customer. And again, it's not, it's not like fair. There's no reason to think that they're accurate. They're just doing it because they can and because it's efficient and, and profitable. And, and the data, if I understand correctly, that they're using is not that the, the uh, objective uh, and, and unarguably relevant data of your past uh, credit performance. They're using these things that you describe uh, in a lot of these algorithms that are being used to decide so many things in our lives. They're, they're using proxies, which are information that is supposed to approximate uh, your credit performance, but uh, may or may not be relevant. Is that is that a fair description? Absolutely. Yeah, and, I, and like again, I don't I don't want to say that I'm not a huge supporter of credit scores, especially as FICO scores are being used as proxies themselves for whether you're a moral upright citizen. And and, and many employers are allowed to look at credit reports to decide whether to offer you a job, and I think that's inappropriate. Um, if you think about the feedback loop of people who have bad credit reports because they are out of work and they need a job and it's ke- keeping them out of a job because they have bad credit reports. It's like a terrible cycle. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue for FICO scores as the best tool ever. Um, but one great thing about FICO scores is that the data they use to build your credit report is relevant to whether you're going to pay your bills. It's questions like, do you pay your electricity bill? Do you pay your medical bill? Um, and that's, I, I feel like that's kind of a fair set of data to look at when you're thinking about loaning somebody money. Um, by contrast, the data that is available to, say, Capital One website, when, when you browse to them, it has nothing to do with whether you've paid your electricity bill. It's mostly things like, were you on Facebook? What does your Facebook profile look like? Um, do you, where's your location? Where are you living right now? Or where's your um, computer situated? Is it in a poor part of Harlem? Is it in a ritzy part of the of the Upper, upper East Side? That kind of question. So it's very demographic based and behavioral, consumer behavioral based. Um, and so it, it doesn't amount to much more than the the same thing we were talking about with the banker, just mm-hmm. sort of sort of profiling you. And, and it happens in a heartbeat, right? It happens in milliseconds. Yeah. So, I mean, people sort of think, oh, I went to the website. You should go to the website as if it's a thing. It's not a thing. It It is rendered when you get there. And all these decisions are made based on what they, who they think you are as a consumer. And one of the criteria, uh, I, uh, as I understand your uh, definition of weapons of math destruction uh, for, for something being uh, a WOB is not only the effect that it has on people, whether they get jobs, whether they get credit, uh, whether they get a college education, wh- whether they manage to uh, climb a ladder out of their particular circumstance to a better one, 
but it's also the fact, and you touched on it before, that the data that's going into these algorithms is secret and proprietary, and uh, it's a black box situation. Right, and I think they go hand in hand. I think like the fact that this kind of demographic profiling can be allowed to happen is because it's secret. I think if we had view into these practices, we would say, hey, that's obviously a bad idea. That's obviously profiling. It's discriminatory. Um, and it's the opposite of mobility, as you point out. Like, what are the chances that you're going to um, be able to climb out of the your um, sort of poor um, situation of birth if every time you look somewhere, every time you try something, an algorithm deems you as a likely loser and mm. prevents you from getting something? I mean, that's really what I'm talking about. And when I say my subtitle of my book is How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And when I say increases inequality, I mean – that there are algorithmic forces at work, and they are um, they are separating the winners from the losers, as I did after I left finance and joined data science. I was separating winners from losers, but I was separating them in the same old way that we used to separate them through class and race and, and gender. And all these algorithms are doing the same thing. And so it is a kind of invisible, but I believe very potent force of inequality. And it's, it, is, it is squashing what's left of the American dream. Talk a bit about buckets and tribes because we're not just being uh, separated into two categories. We're we're being separated into dozens and hundreds, right? That's right. I mean, so I, as I said, I was working uh, as a data scientist after I left finance, and I uh, I was doing something I considered relatively benign. I was deciding whether people on Expedia dot com deserve to see an ad. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. No, nobody's going to – I know, I know. Nobody deserves to see an ad. <laughs> the idea was if they if they were going to buy, then I wasn't going to show them an ad because it would have taken them off the website. Um, mm. But if they weren't, they didn't seem like a likely buyer, then at least we could sort of get the three cents that we got paid to sh- click on the ad. Um, so who d- who was deemed worthy of this ad? And I, again, I was like, this is not – this is not big potatoes, right? Um and then a venture capitalist came to visit our company. He was thinking of he was thinking of uh, investing Series B round funding, and he had us all sit down and listen to his vision of the future of the internet. And okay, venture capitalist, he's an architect, right? He's he's the guy who decides what gets funded and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So he has he has influence. And his vision was this: he said, "I can't wait for the day when all I see are ads for trips to Aruba and jet skis, and I never see another University of Phoenix ad." Because those aren't for me. Those aren't for people like me. And like the people around me laughed. And I was like, dude, like this is dystopian. This is uh, the opposite of the internet as a democratizing force. This is actually the goal here. The goal is to stratify everyone by class, by gender, by race, like get, like, I want to be given opportunities. Let's leave it to other people to be preyed upon. And that's, that's what for-profit colleges do. They prey upon people and they specifically target. And I did the research on this after he said that, because I should say, like, I had never seen a university of Phoenix ad. I didn't know what it was. I, (laughs) I had to go incognito mode um, to even get a University of Phoenix ad because, of course, I was in a highly educated white woman in a Tony part of Manhattan um, with a great job. I wasn't targeted by for-profit colleges. And yet I found out that the for-profit colleges 
that the University of Phoenix in particular, the parent company, Apollo Group, was the number one Google ad buyer that quarter. Wow. This wasn't a small deal. This was like the biggest advertiser on Google. Um, and moreover, I found out that for-profit colleges, um, you know, have a very low graduation rates. But even if you do graduate, a diploma is not worth more than a high school diploma. Mm. And it saddled their students with enormous amounts of debt, didn't give them much of an education. It was a, it was a scheme. It was really a way of gaming the federal aid system and calling it education. And I realized that, you know, I was contributing to it. I felt complicit yet again. I felt like a co-conspirator like I had in finance. So I, I felt like, wait, I, I think what I'm doing is benign, but of course I'm good at my job. And nobody stays at any internet company for more than a couple of years. So I, I develop this technology and then I share it with the people I work with. And then they move on to their next job and they share that with people they're working with. And at the end of the day, I'm contributing to a system where other people are suffering, but I am never suffering, that I am, I'm only benefiting from. And that's kind of how I started seeing the world of tech technologists and data scientists in particular, that we're building a, a universe in which we are the winners. Sounds like the old system. <laughs> well, maybe it was, it's, it's, I don't think it's that different from the old system, but it, the, the sort of at least temporary difference is that we're calling it objective. We're calling mm -hmm. it innovative. Uh, and, and we're, we're bragging about how great we are at, at intelligence, machine, artificial intelligence, and how everybody should be on board because like machines can beat go players. You know, I, I think it has a, a pretty good marketing department. Yeah. Uh, technology company executives have been cover boys of uh, business magazines now going on 25 years um, as, as heroes. Um, so these, these categories that were put in uh, for, let's say, marketing purposes of getting either Aruba vacation ads or, or University of Phoenix ads, they're based on our behavior – as the internet perceives it, as as devices that crawl the internet perceive it, is that where the information is that where the data is coming from? Our our performance, our our activity on the internet. I'll draw you a landscape of the of the data industry, the data marketplace. There are three big companies in the world, <laughs> in this world. There's Amazon. Amazon doesn't sell your information. It collects your information as you buy stuff. There's Facebook. Facebook doesn't sell your information directly, although it sells categories of people to advertisers and that's how it makes money. So it doesn't sell, doesn't say, Hey, Kathy O'Neill is a woman with a PhD white living in New York. It doesn't do that. But if it, if you want to advertise to white women in New York at who's four or 45 years old, then you'll find me. Right. They also, I think, buy information from data warehousing companies, um, which we're going to talk about in a second. And then there's Google, who doesn't sell your information either, but does indirectly sell your information to advertisers through categories like Facebook. And I don't think Google buys data elsewhere. And then outside those three big companies who are like islands that collect data, they don't sell data, they collect data and they mm -hmm. use data, but they don't sell it. Then there's just an enormous industry of secondhand data markets, which is to say, if you go to sort of any site outside those three, those three companies, 
There are things called pixels where where third-party data gathering companies will bombard you with cookies and they'll track you and they'll see, oh, I saw you at footlocker.com and now I'm seeing you at zazzle.com, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then they collect all this information about you. There's hundreds and hundreds of those companies that do that. And they sell that information to big data warehousing companies like Axiom. And Axiom is, one, is, I think, the biggest data warehousing company that collects all this information as well as scraping public records. Um, and then it creates profiles for every consumer in the country. Axiom has a profile on everybody. And then Axiom then is a middleman and it turns around and sells those profiles to companies that are interested, like insurance companies probably buy that, probably large employers like Walmart – I don't know exactly who the customers of Axiom are because it's a secret. So I don't want to say something incorrect, but that's – they are the middleman and they are they have a very profitable company that that buys data about you and sells profiles to other people. And uh, this may not be in your wheelhouse, but uh, does uh, do not track, does tracking, ad blocking, does all these devices that have grown up to uh, supposedly grant uh, internet users a uh, – a scintilla of privacy. Do they keep you out of that marketplace or does that just thin your your data flow to uh, the, the data merchandisers? So ad blockers doesn't thin anything. Ad blockers just doesn't let you see it at the end of the day, the advertising. Um, but it doesn't prevent a future potential employer by to buy information about you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ad blockers just is a way of kind of ignoring something, but it doesn't stop tracking as far as I know at all. Mm-hmm. I, I might be wrong about that. Um, there's the do not track. You can, mm-hmm. you can set your browser to, to, do not track. It, it is not, uh, it's not honored. Nobody honors that as far as I know. It's just mm-hmm. ignored. So that's your, you're asking nicely and they're ignoring you. Mm. You're tracked. But I'll, I'll say, I'll say something, which is that I don't, I don't really care about that for, for myself. Um, and I'm going to go back to what I was saying about the VC and what he made me realize is that this system isn't going to hurt me. I mean, I'm not saying it will never hurt me at all, but I'm saying it. I'm not the victim here. Mm-hmm. The victims are the people who have their demographics working against them in multiple ways. Um, and they're the ones that are in every algorithmic system deemed the losers. So going back to for-profit colleges for a second, they're not just looking for poor people. They're looking for poor people that are also unaware of how college works. So they don't – specifically for people who don't know the difference between private colleges and for-profit colleges. Mm -hmm. They think public colleges sounds not as good as private or for-profit. And there are people like this and they're they're often like parents of immigrants. Um, They're often, um, you know, people whose parents didn't go to college in general, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they're they're ignorant in a certain sense and they're – but they know – the one thing they do know is that if they want to be a a real citizen of the middle class, they have to go to college. Mm -hmm. So they are vulnerable to the pitch. Um, And so it's – it's you were saying about tribes. It's not just that they're poor. They have to be poor, by the way, because otherwise they won't – be eligible for federal aid. And this, as I said, it's a federal aid gaming system. Nobody who's not poor would ever be approached by for-profit colleges. They're only interested in that. But it's not just that. You have to intersect two things. You have to intersect being poor and being ignorant. Um, and so that's that's where you really get the predatory behavior. And you, it's not just for-profit colleges. You also have payday lenders doing exactly mm-hmm. the same kind of thing, Vulnerable, looking for vulnerable people who have no other options. Low-information voters, I think the phrase is in some circles. 
Yeah, that's a um, sort of equivalent in the in the world of politics. Yeah, uh, but it, there's something else that goes into the mix for for-profit colleges, isn't there? A, a desire to get ahead, improve yourself. I mean, that's that's got to be measured. Is that measured in some way? Is that part of the 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 tribe that you're you're put in by the by the data miners? Or does that show up anywhere? Certainly, certainly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in, and in fact, like the real way this works is, you know, uh, the way Google ads are sold is by auction and by keywords. So definitely the for-profit colleges are paying big bucks for keywords such as college, go to college, where can I go to college, you know, phrases like that. Mm-hmm. But they're particularly interested in a certain demographic. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, you're being punished for being ambitious, but in the wrong demographic. Exactly. It's a fascinating book, uh, and uh, you have uh, some suggestions at the end uh, for ways to deal with this so the the picture is not all bleak. Have you had any feedback or brush blowback from the industry after this book was published? You know, I haven't. I was expecting more than I got. I, um, I've gotten a lot of sheepish data scientists saying, wow, I'd never really thought about it. I've got a lot of silence. Um, I'm starting to feel a little pushback um, from the tech giants mm. indirectly. I think there's just an enormous amount of uh, interest right now in antitrust law mm-hmm. and whether it can try to push back against the power of Google and Facebook. And I have strong opinions about that. Um, one of the things I call for near the end of the book with respect to political ads is like the fact that we we have no idea what kind of messages are being sent to people on Facebook. And we even had voter suppression ads. Um, they were bra- the only reason we know about that is because the Trump administration, the Trump campaign actually bragged that they were sending out voter suppression ads to mm. African-Americans on Facebook to keep them from voting. Mm. Uh, but we haven't seen what they say. Maybe maybe they're false information. We have no idea. There's It's complete. Um, it's completely opaque. So I was calling for, um, you know, show us show us the ads. Show us all of them. Let me. As a journalist, look to see if you're sending different messages to different people, if you're sending false information to people. What kind of manipulation is this? And we know it's propaganda. That's kind of understood. Well, advertising is propaganda. Yeah. And political right. advertising. Yeah. Um, but the, I think it just it enters an even more dangerous uh, territory when you, can, when you can tailor your message to exactly the person who is going to see it and no one else is going to see it. And that's why I worry about that. So th- just this week, I realized I heard that Facebook has agreed yeah. to do something along these lines, and that's really good news. You know, I'm, I'm reminded as you as you talk about that uh, of another book I read recently, which is Tim Wu's uh, book about uh, the attention merchants. And yes. basically, what you're describing is what advertisers have been trying to do for a hundred years now, which is a to attract our attention and b to talk to only likely prospects. Exactly. And technology has been, you know, sort of a, a golden window into that promised land uh, for them, not for us. For them, uh, not for us. I would <laughs> I would argue that we should just make it illegal to tailor political advertisement. I, I feel like we've already got enough evidence that it's a bad idea. Like we should just not let them decide exactly who this is going to be seen by. We should say you can show the ad to everyone or no one. Or a random selection of people, but you can't decide who to see, who should see this. And and yet, uh, they'd the hate ad- that, obviously. Of course, and the advertising <laughs> trades tell me that uh, television networks 
uh, are now uh, trying to ape the Internet in being able to more closely target uh, viewers for the purposes of advertising targeting. So uh, that that's a battle that may be on a, fought on a larger battlefield than just uh, the, the Internet itself. We're, we're running out of time, Kathy, and I'm so glad you, you shared your information and your insights with us this hour. Uh, it's a fascinating book, Weapons of Mass Destruction by Dr. Kathy O'Neill. <laughs> Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Program returns next week. Same time, same audio device of choice. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks for pretty much being on standby this week. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead in Santa Monica, to Jenny Lawson somewhere on the East Coast of North America, to... Noriko Okabe at Argo Studios in New York City and Jeffrey Talbot at Audio Works in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for the holidays, don't you think? And a playlist of the music heard here on all available at harryshearer.com. And I persist on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London. London.